This morning we are reading from 2 Samuel 24, starting in verse 10. But David's heart, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I've done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it for you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to them, three years of famine will come to you in your land. Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died in the, the, of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem and struck it to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arunab, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunab, the Jebusite. So David went up to Gad at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. All right. Good morning. Second Samuel is uh, ends very similar to how it started. Um, if you don't know. First and Second Samuel would be written as run, one scroll, so it kind of confuses us when we see First and Second, right? But originally it was one scroll, couldn't all fit on one, so they've got it on two, and so we see it as First and Second. But really, you read it as one story. So how First Samuel starts is how Second Samuel ends, and we're going to wrestle with that today in that story. Um, we, uh, if you could uh, grab a Bible, if you don't own one, there's a hardback black one in seats in front of you. It looks like this. We're going to get in the Word of God today because that's what we do when we gather. It's important that you get into that and read that because I, I've got, there's a lot here, guys. There's so much to unpack in this story, and it's, it's absurd how many things have to be removed from notes because we can't sit here and study this for two hours. Y'all got things to do, and, and maybe you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to do that. We, our minds couldn't crystallize that information and all that sort of window. But, uh, you know, as we wrestle through this, there's a, lot, there's a lot of hard stuff here. In fact, that's why we're not skipping the story. We're, we're digging into it because there's some really difficult things in this passage that we want to wrestle with about who God is, about judgment, about what What's the vagueness of this sin? There's some good things we're going to wrestle with here, but we're going to do it together. And just like last week, we, we've got the yoke up here because someone forgot to remove it this week. That was me. But like last week, we had the yoke up here to say, man, we need to bear burdens together. We've got to carry this together. We're all one body. We're here to wrestle with this together. So I'm just going to kind of shepherd you right now. As you read this story, as you hear this, if there's something that stands out to you, some doubt, some tension, you say, but what about those 70,000 people who died? What about this ridiculous judgment? What about the tension of Satan versus God in First Chronicles and, and, and Second Samuel. Like As you walk into those things, don't let those things be reasons for you to just shut down or for you to blindly say, 
Bible says it, I'm not going to think about it. Like, come on, like God gave us this for a reason. And people have been wrestling with this for centuries because there is a God and because Jesus has all authority. And so we come together to bear burdens together. And some of the burdens we bear together are scripture as it bears its weight on us. And we wrestle through, what does this mean? How do we actually apply this to our lives? What do we do with these hard teachings? So that's what we're doing this morning. Uh, and there's a lot here. So we're going to wrestle through it. Um, I'm not going to get the chalkboard out. You're welcome. We'll leave the chalkboard over there for now. Uh, but there's, there's kind of a, a flow that we're going to go through today, right? We're going to talk about David and Israel's sin, question mark, like what? Their sin. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about God's judgment, question mark. Why? What is, what is the deal? God's just judging people all over the place. What's the deal? Like, calm down, God. That's kind of the Western approach. We read that like, whoa, a little overreaction here, don't you think, Lord? Okay, so we're going to talk about that. So we're going to talk about David's sin, God's judgment, David's choice. He's got a rough choice. God gives him three choices. They're all terrible, right? And then we're going to talk about God's grace. Why is there such mercy? Why is there such grace in this story? And then we're going to look at the end, kind of the result of all this. Uh, I'm going to pray. If you want to open your Bibles to Second uh, Samuel 24, we're going to dig, dig in. God, may you guide us as we wrestle through this uh, amongst all the things you've laid for us to prepare, to wrestle with, to teach. I pray that your spirit would speak, that you'd pierce through um, doubt, apathy, distraction, um, timeliness, anything that's, that's holding us, God, that you would, you would release those things and that we would hear your words. May your spirit guide us now and speak to us. Uh, may it convict our hearts to trust you, to obey you in love. May see your kingdom come and your will be done, Father. Amen. Look at verse 1. We're going to talk first about uh, what's the sin here? David sinned. What's, what in the world's going on? Uh, crash course, if you, if you missed the story, here's what happens. Uh, David decides to count everybody. He decides to count everybody. He goes and does it, and Joab is like, why would you do that? That's weird, right? That seems wrong. And David does it anyway. They force him to do it. And then David automatically feels bad about it, and then God judges the situation. And God says, hey, you got three options here, bub. You, uh, you know, do you want famine? Do you want pestilence? Or do you want uh, uh, to flee from your enemies? And David says, ah, it's a tough choice. He makes a choice. We'll wrestle with that. And then God does it. And then the angel of the Lord has a sword on Jerusalem and then chooses to relent. And then there's this weird situation with an altar. And then poof, that's the location of the temple someday. Weird story. Super weird, right? Full of judgment, tension. That's the crash course. We're going to start reading parts of it. Verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Stop. Sounds pretty typical, right? Welcome to God's relationship with Israel. Sounds like judges. Like, this is it. Why? Why is God's anger kindled against Israel? Heck a reason. There's all, there's all sorts of options here, right? And it's vague intentionally because that's the way 1 Samuel starts is, is the people are trying to do stuff. They're still trying to do things right in their own eyes. And the author wants you to walk into this. Why? Why is God upset with Israel? Because that's the pattern of the book. We've been reading it. If you're new here, we've been reading through the whole Bible this year together, right? And as you see these patterns, you see this consistent pattern of God saying, here is my standard. I love you. I want a right relationship with you. And us saying, we're going to go our own way. We're going to rebel. We're going to do our own thing because we want to be God. We want to decide what's good and evil in our eyes, right? And so that's the pattern. And so when God says here, like the anger of the Lord is kindled against them, I believe, and similar scholars believe, it's, this, it's vague for an intentional reason because it doesn't really matter because it's the same pattern of all of scripture. Now, some people would argue, well, it's because of them going with Absalom. It's because of the thing with Sheba. It's because of uh, Israel constantly being terrible towards King David. 
maybe, but also I think it's intentionally vague because this is the relationship between God and Israel. So he's kindled against Israel and he incites David against them saying, go number Israel and Judah. So the king of jo- uh, said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people. And that I may know the number of the people, uh, the number through all the tribes of Israel. Oh, sorry, I'm reading off here. That I may know the number of the people. Verse 3. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while in the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? This is interesting, like, Joab, if you know Joab, this is not the guy to speak prophetically. This isn't the guy. This is the guy to go murder somebody in their sleep. That's what Joab does. Joab so far is he's going to shank you in your sleep because he serves the king and he just likes to get his knife bloody. That's his thing. And he's the one here in the story. Ironically, again, the author does this intentionally. He's the first one to be like, hold on, David. Maybe, maybe this isn't such a good idea. Eh? Maybe we should do something else here. And then and he's just like, nope, David's going to do it. And he asks the question, Why does the Lord, the king, delight in this thing? Why do you delight in numbering the people? Why do you delight in this calculation? David does it anyway, right? But he mentions that there's a delight here. David's heart is set, his delight. Uh, We've talked about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. Like his heart, his delight now is set on counting the people, on enlisting them, on having a calculation of how many people we have. What is our economic and military strength? That's where David's mind's at. Look at verse 10. As soon as this gets done, they go and report. Joab does all this. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Immediately, David says he sinned. He knows he sinned. Automatically. It's like he just counted people. Again, we're going to walk in this tension. He just got a number. Aren't you supposed to count the cost? Dave Ramsey said, you got to, you know, look at these things and look at the storehouse. I was like, calm down. Aren't you supposed to count the cost? Nah, see, no, there's a problem here. David did something wrong. He immediately knows, I've sinned against the Lord. I've sinned greatly in what I've done. But now the Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Why did David want to repent? So we want to walk in this tension first. This is a weird story. Why do you want to repent? Why is this wrong? This is a confusing story. There are two reasons I want to point out why this is wrong for David and why he sinned. And the first one gets us in the weeds a little bit into some philosophy, but I felt led to, we're just going to do it. The first reason this is wrong is because God said so. Because God said so. And that should be uncomfortable to some of us. Uh, maybe if we've grown up in church, we, we get kind of numb to the uncomfortableness. But in general, if you look at someone in our culture who's doing something apart from the Bible, you said, well, because God said so, that doesn't really hold much weight to a lot of us. Because our initial answer would be, but why? Y'all ever have a, a kid or you've worked with maybe youth or you've been around children, you ever had the kid that's like, but why? Why? Man, I've mentioned this analogy a lot, and it's probably because it was just like such an interesting pattern of my life growing up. But my dad and I would argue over unloading dishwasher every day. Man, every day. And I just hear his voice like, why didn't you unload the dishwasher? I say, well, because you didn't ask me to. No, no, you eternally, son, when you get home, you unload the dishwasher. There is never what, he wouldn't say these words, but if he spoke philosophically, he would say, there is never a world in which you come home and you do not unload the dishwasher, for it is your eternal destiny, my son, to unload the dishwasher. You should never have to ask why. And then my, but like, there's these certain situations that like, why? Why wouldn't you, and maybe you relate to that, you've parented someone, or maybe that's you, you're like, man, some of these things God says are hard. So I approach them with, why? God, if only you would just explain yourself. 
If God explains himself to you and you fully understand all of God's laws and reasons, you're not obeying him. You're agreeing with him as someone who is like him. Your desire to have to have an answer for everything, and we're going to talk about that, the the wisdom differential, but that desire that comes out of us, it's a sign of rebellion. And that's not me stepping over here and saying, oh, just blindly accept everything because we're a bunch of big idiots who just sing worship songs on Sunday. That's not the point. Don't check your brain at the door. God wants you to wrestle with these things. Read the Psalms. They wrestle with God and say, why God, how long? But there comes a point and say, but God is infinite, but God is above, but Christ has all authority, not me. And so this tension that comes up is like, why? Why would this be wrong? I mean, he's just counting people because God says it's wrong. Not the census. There's ways they should have taken census. You can read back in Exodus and the Deuteronomy Code. There's reasons and ways they should take census here. But there's something about David's heart that seems off. We'll get to in a minute. And with this situation, our, our impulse in our Western society is say, wait, why God? Why would this be so upsetting to you? Because he's God and he decides the rules. We have this cultural bias that we approach with Scripture. And I, man, lean into this with me. I know it's going to make some of you uncomfortable, but there are some cultures who would read the Bible and they would say, man, when he says neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, nor male nor female, nor barbarian or Scythian, that's really offensive to me. When he says, hate your father and mother, that's really offensive to me because my cultural bias says that family is the most important thing, that my nationality is the most important thing, that my racial identity is the most important thing. And there are cultures that would do that. It's not ours. Welcome to America. Welcome to the West. In our culture, you know what bothers us? We love the individualism. We love the, oh yeah, of course, neither slave nor free, nor Jew nor Greek. Yes, neither man nor free. Everything is great. It's all about the individual. You know what really upsets us? When God has a standard about gender. When God has a standard about sex. When God has a standard about how you live your daily life. That makes us really uncomfortable because we believe in the pursuit of happiness. Whose happiness? Yours. That's, that's the cultural drum. Whatever you can do for your happiness, for your stuff, for your things, for you, for you, for you, which sounds a whole lot like the pattern and struggle in Scripture. And so it's interesting that when we approach these issues in the Bible, we want to see this like, man, we have progressed so far from the primitive ignorance of some of these laws in the Bible. But actually, when you look at the world culture, even now, 2022, look at all the culture of the world. There are cultures that have really hard struggles with the Bible that we don't have at all. Because we see individualism as the biggest value. And then our culture has all this issue with gender and sex and all these things. We don't want the Bible to tell us how to do that because we want to be individuals. What makes your cultural bias? You, I'm talking to you. Listen, what makes your cultural bias superior to everyone else's? Why do you feel the need? Why do I feel the need? Why do we, as, as a city, as a culture, as a state, as a country, why do we feel the need to fix the Bible to fit with our cultural ideals, with our personal individual biases? Listen, that's literally the struggle we've been reading in Scripture all along. From the beginning, the trouble that they had when they got in the promised land, the trouble at Mount Sinai, the trouble that got them into the Egypt junk, the trouble all through Genesis, keep packing it back all the way to where Adam and Eve are standing before a serpent in the garden. The trouble is they want to say, this is my cultural understanding. This is what I believe. Do you know that when the serpent was messing with Eve and he was trying to tempt her, one of the first things it said is she looks at the fruit and decides it's good for eating. You know what that suggests? That the serpent was reasoning with her cultural bias. The serpent was saying, nah, nah, like God didn't say you'll die. Also, like, have you tried the fruit? Well, why don't you give it to some of the bunnies? Are the bunnies dying when they eat the fruit? 
He's reasoning with her. There's a reasoning there of like, hey, you can see this fruit's good. You can see it's yummy, yum, yum, yum. Eat it, right? That's what happens. We say, oh no, my cultural bias, my understanding, this is how I need to approach issues in the Bible. But what if Jesus has all authority? What if God has all authority? Then what, what if we're supposed to check these biases at the door and understand maybe the arrogance of how you think about sex or you think about gender, you think maybe that arrogance of what makes you comfortable is totally foreign to a God who is infinite. I'll give you another example. I have this conversation with my kids sometimes, maybe, maybe more in my mind than I think I do, but Cohen is my 10-year-old. He's the oldest. And I could easily say to him, Cohen, like, do you, do you know more than your five-year-old brother Bear? Yeah, because you're older, right? You're smarter. You're five years older than him. You got five years more knowledge and intelligence than him, right? There's a wisdom differential there. Cohen, do, do you do things differently than Bear because you're older? Because do you have more responsibility? Yeah, yeah. And so Bear doesn't know as much as you simply because he's five, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cohen, how old am I? Ah, you see, there's the trap. <laughs> I'm 36, right? There's a wisdom differential. Sometimes Cohen and I disagree. We disagree, right? I'm just looking at you, dude. I'm not trying to uh, make you feel embarrassed, but we disagree sometimes. And it's because we see the world slightly differently, right? Because I'm 36 and he's 10. And thank God that God's put a father in front of him that cares about the wisdom of the Lord. I'm 36 years old, maybe 37. Math's hard. I'm, I'm in my mid-30s and God is eternal. There's a wisdom differential there. Maybe when God says something wrong, we have to take a step away from our culture bias against our wisdom, our hubris of the day, our ego, and say, ah, maybe God's right. Maybe his wisdom really is infinite. And maybe from the beginning, he's been giving us a right path for his righteousness, for his holiness, for his good and glory. Maybe I'm continuing to just muck this whole thing up. Ha, look at the world. Look at the stories. This is the pattern of scripture. One of the reasons this is wrong for David is because God says so. We have this idea that if we could just understand God, if he could just explain everything, we'd agree with him, and then everything would make sense. The Bible has the opposite approach. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what the good and acceptable, perfect will of God is. The Bible isn't saying, think really hard about God's will until you agree with it, and then it'll work out. It says, worship the Lord and don't conform to this world. Then you will understand. What if the hymn is true? Turn your eyes on Jesus and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. What if the scriptures are true that the more we look at the Lord, the more we repent, the more we see the world differently, our minds are transformed. This is why what David did was wrong because God says so, because God's right. We got to keep rolling. The second reason, Israel never had a standing army. Catch that because that doesn't make sense to the West, right? Where is America's army? Point all around. There's bases all around. There's people ready to roll. If something happens, lock and load, militiamen. This has been our thing. Some of you right now, you'd say, dude, if it happens over here, I've got a basement full of weapons and ammo. We're ready to go. You've counted your 22 shells and your uh, uh, AR weapon. You've got it. You're ready to rock. I'm not making a comment on that right now. I'm just saying that's us. That's our cultural bias. That is not how Israel approached having an army. Why? Because God was in charge. Because God, they didn't have a standing army that was just always ready to go and always being equipped and trained. God was the one who formed their armies and who sent them out for specific purposes. 
And so this idea here where David is leaning on their economic success, their military success, he's delighting in having a calculation. This is where we've come. This is our power. Catch that. I've calculated and I've decided that we have arrived. I know. God says, no, that's sin. That's wrong. This is the exact same problem that we see at the beginning of Samuel. We want a king. We want to be like all the other nations. Give us a king so we can have some version of calculating our power, our authority. This is wrong because David's heart has this idea that he is delighting in his power, his authority, his economic success, what what Israel has become. Look at what they've become. He delights in this. Let me ask you this morning. What do you delight in? Ah, dang it. There's that pastor switch I wasn't ready for. Think about it. Just think for for a minute. Don't wait till the end of the sermon. We got plenty more to go, man. Page is here. Maybe this is where you need to stop. Listen, what do you delight in? Maybe you need to just check your bank account. We challenge you to do that every now and then. Man, just look at your bank statement. Maybe you pull up usbank.com. That's where I'm at. You know, um, pick a better bank. I don't know banks. Okay, back off. I don't know. So, but you pull up your bank and you see, what have I spent money on the last two months? It's really easy. It's a few clicks on your bank's website. If they have a bad website, I'm sorry. I know some people. But beside the point, like, hey, go to your bank's website. Check it out. And here's the thing. You can look and say, what does my family value? What do I value? Where is my money going towards? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think I've heard that before. Man, it's all authority in heaven and earth and given to Jesus. So maybe you look into that and say, wait, what do I delight in? Maybe you delight in how others perceive you. Maybe you're constantly in the rat race of social media and, and social gain and how people perceive you and, and your goings and, and your thoughts, your, your ego with how you perceive the world situations. Got to make a post so everyone knows what I think. What do you delight in? Anything that makes you say, I'm nailing it. Look how far I've come. There you'll start finding your idol. These are the things you're calculating. Our calculations lead to idolatry. Putting up something in our life that replaces God. Putting up something that says, this is the most important thing to me, and i got to have it. And listen, the serpent didn't stop in Genesis 3. Man, this is apart from the notes, but we're going after it. In Genesis 4, it says... Sin is crouching at your door. And if you don't watch out, it'll devour you. In 1 Peter, he writes, the devil roars like a lion looking for someone to devour. We all sit like we figured this thing out. I understand how porn works, and I understand adultery, and I understand greed, and I've listened to some other people talk about different spiritual things, so I've got I fast once a week. Sin is crouching at your door. None of you are above it. None of me is above it. It's always there trying to destroy us, trying to pull us away from God. And so if you think you've got a grip on your idols, they have a grip on you, I promise. You don't have a grip on nothing. The only thing you can hold to is King Jesus. We'll get there. We've got to think through these things because we're making these calculations. It happens every time. Scroll Facebook today. So many of us are making calculations. What is valuable to us? Here, let's get real practical. We're told to tithe. And have offerings. We're told, oh, I'm not going to talk about money. Calm down. We're told to have tithes and offerings. We're told to live radically generous, like the Father whose radical generosity continues to ripple through Scripture, constantly being generous with everything that's His. We pretend it's ours and that we control it. It's all His. You own nothing, right? It'll all be future garage sale stuff. It'll all be given away. And in 100 years, no one will remember you or the stuff that you own. It's the way it is, right? They'll put someone else's name on the building eventually. They'll put someone else as the CEO of your company. That's how it works. And, and we hold on these things. We're told to tithe, but we don't. 
We don't give to the Lord. We're not generous. We're told to sacrifice our image and our time, the things that we think, the, my, the time that I have, the time I have in life. I'm so busy. I need my leisure activities. I've got to work this. I'm busy. I'm busy. I'm busy. We're told to sacrifice our time to wash others' feet, to serve them, to love our neighbor and forgive them. But we don't. We don't do those things. We're told to hold loosely our stuffs and things because it all belongs to God. And it's all used for His glory and His kingdom. Be willing to offer it up to serve others, to go two miles, to give your cloak too. But we don't. We don't do those things. Why? Because of everything we've talked about at this point, the cultural bias, the idea that we're like God. We struggle with these things. Do we not? I struggle with these things. Right? These are hard. What's the hope? The hope is to give up our calculations, to give up all these things that we calculate, decide this is what's most important. This is how things should be to give up our idols. As we keep reading in the story, we find that these calculations, these delights of other things to the Lord, they, they have the ability to bring about God's judgment. We're going to talk about that here in a minute. But, but just to, as we land on this idea of, of these calculations and the why this was wrong and our own ego, say, if we only obey what we agree with and thereby we craft a religion, a faith, a God in our own image, we craft only the scriptures we like. And we avoid all the things that make us uncomfortable, call us to have open hands, to repent, to seek the Lord. Then all we end up with is a delight in the things that please our eyes and the things that make us happy. And then we die. And we spend eternity separated from God. And eternity is a whole lot longer than your life right now. It may not seem it, but right now, uh, becoming 13 from 10 years old is a big deal to some of my kids. And that to me, that seems like that's a sneeze away because it happens so fast. The fact that one of my kids is 10, I say that out loud. It's like, gosh, isn't he still like eight? No, it happens so fast, right? All the old people in the room would attest, this life is a breath. This life is a vapor. What are your calculations on? Moving on. Let's talk about this judgment because the, the way David did this, this sin, it creates this judgment and, and judgment makes us uncomfortable, right? 70,000 people die. Like, this is a weird thing. What do we do with this? I just want to talk kind of up here at a top level about judgment and give us a basic understanding of how we should think about this. Here's something that might give you some comfort. As you read this story and you think, man, it seems like God's kind of overreacting here. And this is, this is kind of rough. Like, I mean, okay, I get it that God said this is wrong. And okay, now I kind of see that this sin was bad. But like, like pestilence, plague, like that's, that's kind of rough, right? Very, very many times, you can't say always because some things are hard to completely interpret and we don't want to be that arrogant, but I would say the majority of times that you see God's judgment in Scripture, it's a response to rampant, uncontrolled violence. Hear that. God's judgment is a response to rampant, uncontrolled violence. The flood, Genesis 6, evil in their hearts. We're continually focused on evil, right? Romans re, uh, restates that as we create new ways to sin and do evil, right? There's constant violence and brutality. Sodom and Gomorrah, you can read about it in, in, uh, in the different places of scripture in Genesis. We also read about when Ezekiel rewrites about it and he says, because of their brutality, because of their violence, Sodom and Gomorrah. Nineveh, man, because of their brutality, their violence in Nineveh. The Canaanites, when they go into the promised land and they're stopping and they're destroying and they're killing and they're doing all this judgment against the Canaanites because of their brutality and violence, the child sacrifice, these horrible things. What if you think about God's judgment this way? What if God's judgment ends the cycle of retaliation, the cycle of tit for tat? If I go and punch Grayson in the face, part of him, because this is just a dude thing in general, you get punched in the face, you get punched in the face. You punch me, I'll punch you. 
That's how it goes, right? Eye for an eye, two for two, right? And don't look at me like you're above that. Like, it's, you just know, if someone smacks you in the face, it's like interaction, whoop-pow, whoop-pow, right? That's how it works, whoop-pow-pow-pow. You've seen ninja movies. This is how fights go. It never ends. If someone steps on you, you step on them. If you're in a family feud and someone at the family gathering, maybe it's happening this weekend, they say, and you're going to feel me and say, and then someone, and it goes back and forth, tit for tat. It never ends. You know what stops the cycle of retaliation aside from Jesus' absurd thing to say, hey, why don't you just die for them? That stops it. You know what else stops it? A God who is above all, who casts judgment. You're going to retaliate against the God who spoke everything into existence? Try it. See how it goes. You can't. And so God steps in and he casts this judgment to where no one can retaliate. No one can have violence. And then you see things more clearly. Hold on. If God's stepping in to cast judgment, maybe we've completely messed it up. Maybe we've completely missed things. What if God's judgment is to discipline, shape, and mold his people away from the violence that ultimately corrupts and destroys? What if here God is trying to protect them from becoming the very nations that they drove out? What if God's judgment is to keep them from becoming Sodom and Gomorrah, to keep them from becoming places like Nineveh, the Canaanites? Now all of a sudden, God's judgment seems a lot more like a father's love. Hmm, gosh. And I know, I know that doesn't answer everything. And I know, man... This is a hard message with recent events. There are things that happened this last week, whether it's, it's a report from the SBC that's egregious and it weighs heaven in our hearts, or it's rather kids getting shot and we don't have answers for that. This isn't saying that that's God's judgment. No, no, no. You need to understand, I'm not promoting here that the problem of evil is just God judging everybody. There is a corrupt world that has evil. Evil's crouching at your door. Sin is crouching at your door. There is a corrupt world amongst us. The schema, the fabric of our world is broken. We talked about that last week. It's trying to draw us away. Our flesh is trying to draw us away. Constant patterns of getting away from the Lord. The world, the flesh, and the devil constantly pulling us away. And so a lot of bad things because we've already cast judgment on ourselves. We've brought it on. We've, we've done these things. And if you think that you're so above this and you're not culpable, start looking at some of the things God has said and hold yourself accountable. Do, do I obey everything he's taught us? Do I, do I follow the Lord in the way? Ah, maybe, maybe all of us in some ways has brought this on. So there's that side of the problem. You're right that we brought this on, right? And obviously this is too big of an issue to cover right now. So forgive me that, that this is so short. But there's that side of thing. But also God chooses to judge. And, and one day God says that he will judge everyone. And there will be a separation eternally, forever, between evil and between righteous, between good and between evil. And God will do that. Why? Because he is holy. Because he is holy. We, we lose sight of the holiness of God because, again, we have a cultural bias. We have things that separate us. But have you ever stopped and thought about how... What, what if God really is set apart, perfect, holy, and right, and everything he says is right? Now, all of a sudden, you have a completely different pattern of response to life because what he says is right. If he is holy, if he's the objective source of what's good and what's right and he is holy, then maybe I'm wrong. Maybe to view God's judgment as wrong is me taking steps to say, I could be like God. I could decide good from evil. And now we're in the same cycle that keeps drawing us all away. Can you stop all the violence and corruption that you see in the world? Can you, can you hold everyone accountable that's done wrong, even the last day, last week? Think of someone who's hurt you. Let's make it real personal. In your mind, who's, what's the last time someone's really stepped on you? When have you had to offer forgiveness without reconciliation? That's hard. That's rough stuff. 
And you just have to say, I forgive you, but we didn't get to talk about it. As you think through that, like, are you the one that can go and fix that? Does your words, does your actions? No. Maybe there is a God who's above us who judges. Thank the Lord that he has a pattern of judgment and that he has a pattern of grace. Hold both those things together. You want to understand God's mercy and his justice? You want to understand God's judgment and his grace? Look to the cross. We can talk about Jesus all day long with this. Because God ultimately takes all this on himself. Spoiler alert, that's a page from now. But that's, that's it. God ultimately does all this on himself. So David's left with a choice now. He's made this sin. God's bringing this judgment. And God says, hey, do you, do you want three years of famine? Do you want uh, three months of fleeing from your enemies? Or do you want three days of plague? I used to think that, like, you read this. And my first thought, you know, I read this story. Let me, let me be really just honest here for a minute. I have a degree in the Bible, and I've, I've read a lot of the Bible, but there are times when you read it. I hope some of you shake your head about this, and I'm not the worst person in the room. There are times you read a story, and you're like, I don't remember this one at all. That was this story. Maybe this is you now. You're like, I don't remember this story. Yeah, so this is kind of like God this week. Monday, I was mowing, and I was this, and I was like, what is happening? What is going on? And then it just went on to First Kings. I was like, hold on. This, is, this can't be how it ends, right? And so this is it. I've been studying this so hard this week because it drew me in. This is a weird story. And so you have this situation where God's like, hey, do you want this? And as I read it, the first time I heard it, and several times I've read it, I had this attitude of, oh, of course he picked three days because that's just playing the odds. Like, roll the dice, right? If you've got a three-year sentence, like the reverse genie here, this is a terrible situation. You've got three wishes, and all three of them are terrible. Which do you choose? I'm going to choose the one that is only three days, right? Come on. Like, now, but you look at this. David's choice says something very specific about what he believes. David's choice takes away all his confidence in his calculations, Look at verse 14. David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hands of man. David chooses to be in the hands of the Lord because if famine comes, they're going to look to their economy and really buckle down and all his calculations come back. Oh, good thing I did these calculations because we got this famine here and I already calculated for it, right? And then if, if they have three, three months of being chased by the enemies, ah, back to his military. Oh, dude, I counted these guys. We're ready. Turns out I was ready all along, God. So, you know, no, but he, David recognizes I've messed up here. I need to fall into the hands of the Lord. He opens his hands. He says, the Lord is the one who is mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. The Lord is consistently merciful to David and Israel. He is compassionate. In the Lord's hands, there's mercy. Listen, these idols, these things we prop up in front of God, whatever you delight in that you think is so important, May the Spirit be laying that in your mind and heart. Whatever you put and say, this is what's most important to me. That thing can't have mercy on you. It can't have grace on you. It will devour you. Walk this out with me. I want to continue to be, man, I was just really overweight and really unhealthy so much of my life. And then as I've gotten more fit and strong and I just look so awesome now, whatever. Like you go through these things, my back hurts. I hurt my back doing snatches Monday and I feel like an old man. But anyway, so like, so like you have these things and you can hold it up and say, look, I'm, I've really arrived. I've got, I get no mercy 
from looking in the mirror, from lifting heavy. There's never enough weights I can lift. There's never a good enough workout time. There's, I beat Nikki at two workouts this week. It's not enough, right? Because she beats me at all the other ones. But it, there's no mercy for me in that. If your goal is to be the most successful person in the room, to be able to say, look, I've really arrived, it never ends. Because someone is more successful. Someone's better than you. And, and when you fail and you will fail, when I fail and I do fail, man, I drank so much chocolate milk yesterday because it was my day. I was like, I'm drinking chocolate milk. I love chocolate milk and we're going to do it. And I have just had bubble gut since last night. You don't even want to know. When I fail, do you think then I get mercy and I say, oh, it's going to be okay? No, I'm just fatter and I'm the guy who drank too much chocolate milk. When you fail in your job, you're just the person who failed. You got to try harder. When you fail as a grandma, you're just the person that's got to try harder and work better. It's all on you. You fail. If your family's the most important and then your kids grow up and make stupid decisions, look at you. You're a big idiot. You've screwed up. You get no mercy from your idols. You get no mercy from your idols. There can be no grace, no salvation, no mercy from your idols. And so David says, I'm going to put myself in the mercy of God because only God is merciful. Only God can give me not what I deserve, but give me things I don't even deserve. Only God can do that. So David looks to the Lord's hands, not everyone else's. In fact, the psalmist writes when he's talking about idols, so brilliant, Psalms 115, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. They do not make sounds with their throats. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Your idols, your family, your friends, your, your economic gain, your 401k, your plans, your delights, these things that become so important to you, they can't have mercy on you. They can't even speak. They'll all fall apart. So David says, I'm going to rest on the mercy of God. We move now to look at God's grace. How do we see God's grace in this? I mean, it's a pestilence, right? That doesn't seem graceful. As the story goes, the angel of the Lord points his sword down on Jerusalem, going to destroy it. And the Lord relents. It actually says at the, at the appropriate time. So we're not at the end yet, but it's at the time. Wham! Sword's going to come down. And they can even see this. Here's the weird thing about the sword. Imagine looking out and just seeing big celestial thing in the clouds. Or I don't know how it worked. Maybe you could see it on the hilltop because that's how mountains work. You see, and you just see the angel Lord with the sword. And it's like going to wreck this. You're like, oh my gosh. This is bigger than any nuclear weapon I've seen. This is bigger than any military plane. This is something beyond me that's going to destroy everything. This is what they're seeing. These uh, Gad's kids run, or uh, uh, Aruda's kids run. David sees it there. It's like, this is a big deal. Verse 16. And when the angel of the Lord stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity. Relented. And said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. The Lord speaks. It is enough. Now stay your hand. Jerusalem could have been destroyed. More destruction, and it would have been, David chose it. He chose three, three days. We got it. God says, it's enough. Stay your hand. Why? Why do we see this grace? What happened? Three things I want to point out that David does that are directly related to us. When we start, we talk about cultural bias, we talk about idols. Maybe you're sitting there like, okay, cool. You've put all this heaviness on me. What do I do? Let's look at what David does. How does David respond? He repents. David, you want to know the big difference between Saul and David? David repents before all the stuff falls on him, before he even has consequences oftentimes. He repents. We read that previously. David repents. 
What does repentance look like? There's a couple slides here. I want to talk about this. To repent, like, so regret, let's go back to that one. You're right. No, you're, you're right, Joe. Regret and worldly grief, things like, oh, man, I really messed this up. Dang it, I regret that. Bummer, I really screwed up here. In themselves, they're all about us. And ultimately, they just lead to mere behavior modification, modifying your behavior so you can be a better weightlifter, so you don't hurt your back when you snatch, or so you can be a better grandpa or mom or uncle or business owner or college student or spouse or, or whatever you are. It's all about behavior modification. We have lost comfort, convenience, the life we want, my hurt, my ruin, my failings, me, 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 me. That's how regret works. But David's response is, now I'm going to fall in the hands of the Lord. He immediately reckons that he has sinned. He uses the word iniquity. David recognized that he's broken something. Repentance looks like this. It looks to the Lord who can change our heart. I have lost a right relationship with the Lord. I have broken what God created to be good. Repentance sees the lost and broken situations we have and leads us to look to Jesus, who took our sin punishment on himself in his great love and grace. Should have said grace. I make mistakes. I repent. Repentance is us recognizing we've broke something, right? Not mere regret. Oh man, my life stinks. I've really messed up here. Look at these situations I'm in. If only God would fix these circumstances, bummer. Repentance says, no, no, no. I've broken something. I'm culpable. We're, we're, I need God to restore this. This is on me. David repents. David gives up his idols. David doesn't go back to say, he doesn't play the odds anymore and say, oh no, give me the famine because I just got numbers to calculate that. Give me the military uh, attack because I've got numbers to calculate says, no, I have no control over plagues. Do you have control over plagues? Can you think of a time you've experienced something like a pestilence or plague in recent times? Come on, church. Like, we've all argued about it. We've all got different opinions on it. We, we stopped meeting for church. We start meeting for church. Right? Did we have any control over that? No, we didn't. David has no control over this plague. He says, okay, I'm going to put my hands in the Lord. He repents. He gives up his idol, himself, his things. And then he offers a substitution. Point three, he offers substitution. Verse 17, then David spoke to the Lord. And when he saw the angel who was striking the people, and he said, behold, I have sinned. I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. David says, me. Slay, slay the shepherd, not the sheep. Kill the king, not the people. Put it on me. Christians, you know what this sounds like? Come on, you know where we're going with this. David says, take the shepherd, not the sheep. Put it on me. David offers himself up as a substitute. But he's not enough. He's not, he's not an ultimate sacrifice. David's trying to repent and be a good shepherd and be a good king, but he's not the good shepherd. He's not the king of kings. God provides a sacrifice for David. As Tisha read, God tells Gad to tell David to build an altar. In fact, if you read the First Chronicles edition, it says that the angel of the Lord spoke to Gad. And he's the one who says, hey, go to Aruna the Jebusite and put up an altar on his threshing floor. God provides. What does all that mean? Hold on. How do we put together this story? God provides a sacrifice. Where are we at now? Okay, I need to repent. I need to, but but what, do I, what does this mean? Second Chronicles 3.1, it gives us a key to unlocking this whole story. Thank God. Listen, Second Chronicles 3.1, stay with me. We're coming in hot. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on? Say Mount Moriah like you mean it. Okay, Mount Moriah. He built it on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David and his fathers at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. What, uh, church, what's the significance of Mount Moriah? Uh-huh. 
Ah, Abraham and Isaac, right? It's where they build the temple. Hear this. Mount Moriah, the word means God sees, God provides. It's too good. It's almost like God orchestrated the whole book of the Bible for us to make sense of who his character is. Mount Moriah means God provides. Who here knows the story of Abraham and Isaac? His son, he takes him out on the mountain. He's supposed to sacrifice him. He takes sticks up there. The word also translates to, to tree, to wood. It has all this imagery of going up the mountain of God to be with God, just like the tree in the garden up on a mountain. There's all this symbolism there. And he goes up on Mount Moriah and he's going to sacrifice his son because God told him to. And it's a super uncomfortable story and the test here. And what's God doing? And then God provides a ram, a sheep. God sees and God provides. A thousand years later, God sees and God provides a sacrifice for David. He doesn't have his sword drop on Jerusalem. He doesn't have David die for all the sins of the people. God provides the rune of the Jebusite, the altar there. And then the first temple is built here where thousands and thousands, countless lambs would be sacrificed. In this location, because God sees and God provides. If you hear nothing else this morning, God sees you and God provides, and he has provided. God sees and God provides. Look at the character of God in this. If we go back to verse 16, it says, When the angel stretched out his hand, Jerusalem destroyed it, the Lord relented, and he says, It's enough. Stay your hand. The word relent means God was grieved. God was grieved. This broke God. This hurt him. Why did this hurt him? Because God sees and God provides. God sees back. He sees everything. He sees. He remembers Abraham, Isaac. He remembers the sheep that was provided there for that sacrifice. He sees this moment. And he says, I know that right now I'm providing a sacrifice. And I know that one day in my sovereignty, we're putting the temple right here where my presence will dwell. And you will make sacrifices to have a right relationship with me, to obey me through your trust, through your love with me. And he sees that one day there'd be him there arguing with the Pharisees and flipping tables because they're continuing to muck it all up and say, we're doing it right. We're better. We've got this religious thing figured out. God sees. And God knows that amongst that same area, not the exact same place, but he knows that he would die. He would be sacrificed. The lamb of God would ultimately be slain. The angel of the Lord is holding the sword over Jerusalem for David's rebellion, for his arrogance, for his calculations, for his understanding. But the sword would actually ultimately be turned on the Lord himself. And it would fall on God himself, on King Jesus. Amongst all the animal sacrifice this location, none of them could truly change the heart and deal with the evil and corruption. But God himself can, through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Just like John the Baptist said, he saw Jesus. John 10, verse 11, verse 18, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. How does this all end? Well, God consumes David's offering. He buys the threshing floor, and this ends up becoming the place of the temple, like we said. This story shows us God's sovereignty. Originally, all I wanted to teach about was that point. Sorry that we took so long to get there. I was going to say, look at God's sovereignty. You think your life is all messed up? God provides. God sees. He knows. In fact, this puts an interesting thought in the Genesis 50-20 thing we keep coming back to. Tov and Ra. Say Tov. Ra. 
right? Right. Tov is good. Ra is evil. Genesis 50, 20. As for you, what you meant, Ra, evil against me, but God meant it for Tov, for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What was intended for evil here, God ultimately used for good. There's only one who can bring Tov from Ra, good from evil. It's not me. It's not our church. As awesome as we can become, whatever your ideal is of a, of a perfect church, right? Whatever your ideal is of a perfect government, school system, family, your grandma's faith, your own behavior modification, none of those things can bring good from evil. It's Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who the sword fell on for us, for our rebellion, for our arrogance. We can't say it more simply than Jesus's first words. Jesus says when he came, Mark 1.15, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We see that in David. David repented and believed in the gospel. He gave up his idols. He said, I'm going to look to the Lord, not because of, oh, poor me, I want my stuff to get better, but because I've broken something with God and only he can make it right. We repent and we believe in the gospel. Today, I don't know where this all lands on you, man. Like maybe you just got to hear stuff about the cultural bias. You're like, man, I just, I don't consider obeying God because I want him to work for me. I want him to be figured out by me. Maybe his sovereignty, his holiness, maybe that's where you stop today. Maybe you stop and you say, man, what, what are my delights? Where are these idols, these things that I prop up that, that will kill me? They can't show me mercy. They can't give me what I'm hoping for. It's a never ending rat race until we all die. Maybe God's saying to you now, hey, Whatever that thing is, he's laying in your heart, repent. Look to the brokenness that you have and point it to Jesus, the only one who can save this, the only one who has all authority, who says he's with you always. What we have left is to trust and obey. We trust him with our time, with our money, with our stuff, with whatever it is that you delight in. We trust him. Romans 8, 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I can try to convince you all day about how God is holy, how God is above you. I can talk philosophy and apologetics and all these things. But maybe before you, you get into the weeds of all that, maybe you don't like the cultural bias conversations. You're upset that I said gender. What, stop. Let's think about this. Look at what God has done for you. You're here. You're watching right now. You're breathing. You're hearing the gospel. God has brought you here this moment to hear his truth. He's brought you here this moment to repent and believe in the gospel. That could be your response. Or you could walk out those doors and continue in the same patterns, getting the same results, ultimately leading to death and destruction and eternal separation from him. If you don't know the Lord, God's brought you here today to repent and believe in the gospel, to give your life to Jesus, to say, I'm going to put my hands in the mercy of King Jesus, not on myself, not on my delights, but in Jesus. Maybe God's brought you here today to open your hands. This is also your posture and say, man, I, I got things I just got to give to the Lord. These things I need to repent of, this, this busyness, this, this hectic, these, these things in my life, I got to give it to the Lord. Maybe church, he wanted you to hear that because you recognize that your life is much more focused on yourself, your ideals, and less on his kingdom come and his will be done. And his sovereignty needs to be the only thing bringing good because you can't do it. It's not on you on King Jesus. As we move into this time of response, I would encourage you to, to not be thinking about how we've gone long, uh, the temperature, the weird yoke, uh, how much I've yelled. Man, I would encourage you just to take a moment. Don't miss this time to open your hands, to have this posture. Say, Lord, what is it that I need to repent and believe in? 
How do I repent and believe in the gospel right now? Where are my calculations? Where are the things that I'm off? Apart from all the words here, take a moment right now, you and your family, submit to the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for this story. Thank you for the way that you've taught us the, the same cycle. God, how things started in 1 Samuel, how they end. And so many words and thoughts here, God, we submit them to you. We want to hear from your spirit. And I pray that your spirit would speak to us and guide us in our response. Guide us in how we look to you. May we believe, may we believe that Jesus has all authority. May we believe that he's with us always. And may that spurn us to go and make disciples, to teach, to obey, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbors, ourselves. Guide us in your spirit as we look to you right now, as we respond. May we see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. If you need someone to pray with, if you need to talk about something, we'll be up here. Take this time to open your hands and